Welcome to Housing Hour New Zealand. I'm Tom Simonson, Principal Policy Advisor and Program Manager for the Housing 2030 Program. Today I have Stephanie McIntyre, Director at DCM. Stephanie is a tireless advocate for the most marginalized people in New Zealand, most notably those who are homeless. She has worked with DCM for more than 15 years. Stephanie's commitment is to end homelessness by thoroughly understanding, gathering evidence about, and implementing practical solutions to address the complex issues that underlie homelessness in New Zealand. Stephanie champions the establishment of harm reduction housing as a bold, yet highly effective accommodation option for the most vulnerable homeless population. DCM, formerly known as Inner City Ministry and then Downtown Community Ministry, has been working in the city of Wellington since 1969 to focus on the needs of and to help empower those marginalized in the city. DCM has adopted the byline, Together We Can End Homelessness in Wellington, which reflects its current focus on the needs of one key marginalized group, people experiencing homelessness or who are at risk of homelessness, supporting them on a journey towards sustainable housing and well-being. Premising her practical and operational experience, Stephanie has a master's in reflective social practice from London Metropolitan University. The bottom line for this podcast is what should every counselor know about how to begin to address New Zealand's growing homeless population? Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Thank you. It's great to be here. I thought for the listeners, I thought it would be really helpful and useful just to start out with some basic definitions. And my first question then is, what is homelessness and how do we define it? Well, it might surprise people to know that we do have our own definition in New Zealand. It was developed several years ago now by Housing New Zealand, uh, Statistics New Zealand and MSD. And it's quite a broad definition. So it plots people on a continuum right through from that severe end, which is made up of people who are sleeping rough, living in their cars, sleeping in sheds and garages, right through sharing accommodation, so what we colloquially call couch surfing sometimes or doubling up with families, through to people living in emergency and transitional housing situations, even including boarding house and backpackers. And actually we have a lot of people in New Zealand living in motels at the moment who are rightly included in that broad definition of homelessness. Hmm, That's really interesting. So what will it take to end homelessness now that we've kind of defined it? Well, you can tell from our tagline that we believe that's possible, and we've held that tagline for several years now, that when we work together, we can end homelessness. So it's got to be a shared problem, and we've got to have a shared understanding of what it means and how to tackle it. It has to begin with homelessness is only comprised of people who are sleeping rough or living in their cars, and actually the big groups are the hidden homeless. So we need to have a handle on what the issue is, And we've tended in New Zealand to rely on street counts, which are very poor measures of the actual number of homeless people because, of course, it doesn't count the people who are doubled up with other families or living in another family's garage. And then we've got to have the mindset that believes this can be done. And we can look across to overseas examples. I mean, for example, uh, Finland and Ireland back in 2008, similar populations, they embarked on different pathways. Ireland went down the track of building more temporary shelters and their homelessness population has dramatically increased. Whereas Finland invested in affordable housing and they've reduced their homelessness to something like 
150 people in total. So we've, we can see that it can be done. That's really fascinating, the fact that you can actually end homelessness. And it seems to be endemic through many of the communities I've lived in that that's just a feature, that homelessness exists and it'll probably always exist. And you're highlighting some points that it can be ended, it can be addressed. Absolutely. There's many examples around the globe. But the way we go about it is really critical. So it does start with having a good grasp of your actual local situation because there's little point in putting together a strategy that's not designed to meet the needs of your own unique needs in your community. But it then requires a can-do attitude and a a mindset. First of all, that this is a recently emerged critical social issue in Aotearoa. It's it's relatively new. It's exploded onto the scene in the last sort of decade. It's very much interlinked with our housing crisis here. So the two things can't be dealt with in isolation. They must be dealt with together. And to understand what ending it means, because sometimes people come back at me and they say, oh, that's so pie in the sky to have that kind of idealism that you've got. I'm not idealistic about this. We can watch the money and see that actually it costs a great deal for a person to remain homeless in any community. In New Zealand it's been estimated something like 65,000 per year to keep a person homeless. What we know is that programs to end homelessness are vastly more cost effective than that so we can we can repurpose the funds that we're using and then understand what ending homelessness is and various places around the world talk about achieving a functional zero. There's a great little tagline that comes out of I think it's the Western Massachusetts. The aspiration, it's wonderful, the aspiration is for homelessness to become rare, brief and non-recurring and they describe what it is to have a functional zero. So in other words of course we do all know that things will fall apart for people, people might enter into homelessness but we've got to have a system that can respond to that. At the same time working to prevent people becoming homeless in the first place so that there's resources going into prevention but if and when people do become homeless we need a systems approach that enables us to respond to it really rapidly and then ensure that it doesn't recur. So what is housing first exactly because that's central government's approach to addressing or getting people on the road to home ownership or at least a stable solid um, place to live. Housing First is it's a fantastic program we embraced it at DCM in principle several years ago now but we're delighted that we're one of the agencies now that's actually going to be the recipients of funding for a more significant program here in Wellington and What's unique about Housing First is it is literally placing the housing part first. So there's been an expectation that housing would be a reward for good behaviour or be a reward for compliance and that it was inappropriate to house people if they hadn't sort of addressed the multiple issues that they had going on in their lives. Now Housing First sort of debunked that and said, actually do you know what, if people are homeless they're just going to become less well. All those issues that they're currently experiencing will be exacerbated. And that's why homelessness becomes expensive, because there's lots of emergency room admissions. There's there's spells in prison, both of which are enormously expensive ways to address what fundamentally can be addressed much more compassionately and humanely, but also more economically, by actually placing a person into permanent, stable, affordable, safe housing and then bringing the supports to them to support them to become a great neighbour and and a really good tenant and and actually all the people I've spoken to over the more than 15 years I've been at DCM who are currently homeless the vast majority of them 
articulate that this is what their goal and dream is. We're responding in the most appropriate way, which is listening to the target group who are most affected by this and putting in place what they believe will be the best for them. And so Housing First really literally is about that. It's prioritising the most vulnerable and marginalised people in our community, generally those who've had the longest periods of most severe homelessness, not always that, but who've also got high and complex needs, placing them in the kind of housing that they identify will work for them as rapidly as we can, and that's the challenge in Aotearoa, New Zealand at the moment, because that's a challenge in a housing crisis. But nevertheless, there are houses out there, so placing them into the housing. And then it's simple, actually. It's with home visits, it's with building rapport, building trust, actually being there for the person to sort out all those things that might occur, um, building their strengths and skills to become a great tenant. So that's a really interesting point, and you brought up at the very beginning that it was debunking some of the historic understanding about this reward when you work hard, you get a house. And so that, that brings us to the point about history within New Zealand, and obviously there's colonization, even marginalization, with overrepresentation of Maori and Pacifica in certain circumstances with housing tenure and security. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how actually the, the philosophy of housing first, which isn't unique to New Zealand, it's around the world, has really turned over what used to be um, a very different concept towards housing security and tenure? Well, it is important to acknowledge the history of our homelessness in Aotearoa because the data all tells us that people who are Māori and people who are of Pacific descent are more likely to be homeless than anyone else. And that's tied in with the impacts of colonisation and that's a significant issue to, to address. And, and one of the critical ways that it can be addressed is to ensure that there are by Māori, for Māori responses to end homelessness in Aotearoa. That's an absolute given. The way that we address that at DCM is that we have uh, we have more Māori staff than any other ethnic grouping amongst our staff makeup, followed by Pacifica, followed by Pākehā, are actually in the minority, and Māori have got positions of key leadership in our organisation. And Housing First is based on a key set of principles that the person who coined that term, Dr Sam Sambaris, who works out of New York City in an organisation called Pathways to Housing. He came up with that brilliant name, Housing First. But that doesn't mean that other organisations haven't found their way to it. We actually stumbled on a Housing First approach by interviewing people who were homeless and listening to them and hearing that that's the, the sort of practice that they wanted us to implement. Critical to those principles is consumer choice, so it's putting the person at the centre. And I think we can even notice some trends going on currently, which are that a person who's perhaps a challenging neighbour is coming in as a tenant with mental health distress, using drugs and alcohol, a complex, somewhat chaotic life, they're not always prioritised for the best housing. In fact, sometimes they get the crumbs of the housing. And also there are expectations that, well, because we're, we're doing such a good thing for them and we're giving them a house, we've got a right to expect that they might be housed in isolated situations. But, but actually that's not always the smart way to go about things because if the person's preference and choice is to be housed closer to their social supports or their health supports, there might be very good reasons around that. So consumer choice is a really critical principle. It was also premised on housing being a basic human right, and I think we often forget that. We don't have that in 
human rights legislation in New Zealand, but it should be there. It's fair and reasonable that every person in a developed country has the right to housing. There are other principles as well that talk about harm reduction or harm minimisation. So there's little point in us blaming a person for using drugs and alcohol. That the history to their drug and alcohol use may well go right back into childhood and might have been as a response to some trauma as a child, often in our own state care institutions. So we shouldn't be judgmental about that and we should listen to what the alcohol and drug clinician community can tell us about the nature of addictions. I mean, in point of fact, the best way to deal with a dependency on drugs and alcohol is actually to ensure that a person has quality stable, safe housing, because a lot of people are using to block out cold, fear, these sorts of things out on the street. And so having a harm reduction approach means that we're not expecting the person to become abstinent before they're housed. We're going to work with them around lowering their drug and alcohol use after they're housed. So those sorts of principles are quite a game changer, and all of them come together to show why this is a really effective model. I mean, the efficacy, the the results that it showed around the world actually show that it can make a very big dent in ending homelessness. That's really interesting that you bring that up because I'm hearing a little bit of a theme coming through what you're saying. One is close engagement, listening to the customer, understanding what they need, and being able to work closely with them to make sure that you get close as close to the outcome that they're looking for that can be achieved. The second part about that, and I'm going to come back to the point that you made about Ireland and Finland and other places, is the fact that there needs to be good leadership at the beginning of this process that to pull the councils closer to that vulnerable, marginalized group in some cases requires some determination, uh, requires some vision about what the outcome is really going to look like. Can you talk a little bit more about, like, for example, the Finnish example or other examples you might have around where councils have actually said, listen, we're going to take the bull by the horns. We're going to address this issue because we can't continue to let it linger. It's going to cost us more in time, resources. It's going to reflect on us as a community as well. That's not how we want to treat our people. Well, this is an issue that needs leadership and it needs champions. And we're actually fortunate in Wellington that our council has been looking into this issue for for some time. And because of that, they actually have an understanding of these issues around homelessness. And diverge for a moment and say that actually when we first started working in the area of ending homelessness, the popular discourse out there was that people chose to be homeless, that it was a lifestyle choice. Well, we're light years past that in Wellington, I'm very, very pleased to say. And there's a good understanding that around this aspiration that we want homelessness to become rare, brief and non-recurring. So it does start with, it, it starts with a good grasp of what homelessness really is and what the best practice is to end homelessness. It is an evidence-led way of thinking. So it's, a, it's about moving away from the feel-good stuff. So I'll give an example of an initiative that began in Australia, which is taking a van around with laundry and shower facilities in the back of the van. Now, it, it's, it's a really appealing notion. Uh, what, what is there not to like about that? Except that it's a, a response that actually enables and, in fact, drives more homelessness. We've got to be careful that we're not doing things that actually make rough sleeping easier. That's not a smart way of thinking. And, and people will sometimes question me about that and think, oh, well, she's a bit 
hard-hearted about this whole notion, but it's not. Eh? It is, as you say, about building engagement, a great rapport with the person. It, there is a lot of skill involved in who, who you're going to engage. So councils need to be working with skillful operators who can both describe to them what best practice would look like in their community, who have got ways of measuring and counting homelessness and ways of measuring progress towards reducing those goals and can put in front of them a way of working and a service delivery approach with not one aspect of enabling or creating or growing homelessness, moving away from those sort of things and focusing on the things that will support a person to come to the realisation that actually sleeping rough's not good for me, it's bad for my health. I look around and my other brothers and sisters are dying young from health-related conditions. We don't want people living in that sort of way. There's nothing about it that's mana-enhancing, that's lifting people up. And so we don't want to do things that actually further contribute to the problem. And I'd, I'd love it if councils ran the ruler over every social programme that they're funding and asked the question about how is this going to end this critical social issue? It may not always be about homelessness. It could be in any area. What's going on to actually push this issue upstream? In other words, start to turn the tap off of people coming into homelessness, as, we, as this is the thing we're discussing today. And all those sorts of things, I think it, they, they require a, a mind shift, a different way of thinking about this issue. And they actually require an understanding of what a systems change looks like. Now, I'll give you an example of what's going on at the moment out here in, in New Zealand. Now, it's great. There's been a real response to homelessness. There's now, we, we're fortunate we have a government in, in place who recognise this as a critical issue and who want to attack it. But one of the mechanisms that's been put in place is actually growing an emergency housing sector. And when we come back to, say, the, the Finland and the, and the Irish examples, actually we should be looking that that's not so very different from what they did in Ireland. If we grow an industry of emergency housing and transitional housing, we're not really putting our eyes and attention onto ending homelessness. And so right now we've got people in Wellington and every city around New Zealand whom our taxpayer dollars are funding very expensive motel stays. And actually, do you know what? We're not actually even charging those people rent to be in there. So because it's too complex for, I think, I don't know how my, maybe this isn't making a criticism here of Ministry of Social Development, my understanding is that it's too complex to actually charge that person 25% of their gross income, which is what they'd be paying if they were in public housing. So they're not being charged anything. And then you're, then we're asking social agencies to work with those that same population with a housing first approach to actually motivate that person into long-term permanent housing. So we've actually got one whole system running in one direction and a, a cross program running in another direction. And, and yes, they can be brought together, but actually there's a counterintuitive slipstream going on there. And that's what I mean about systems change, is that we've got to actually see that this is one whole joined up system that's got lots of contributions coming in from different parties and that we need to work together in a very collaborative, well-informed, intelligent design to actually make this go forward together to get momentum in the right direction. There's lots of good signs about what's going on now, but actually we've got this huge beast of an emergency housing sector growing on the side as well. It's going to pop soon and, uh, well, 
the activist in me says, let's get on and prick that balloon. That's so, interesting to hear because over the past five years, we've had a fairly strong economic boom. And you see people doing better in many cases than they've ever done before. But what you also highlight and, and point to is the fact that there's a growing marginalization that's occurring in those in these places that you know that obviously don't have as, as many opportunities as, as others are being pushed to the outskirts and having more and more difficult time finding housing. In that that endeavor that you're talking about, and, and I, I, I really want to get involved uh, or in, in a conversation about um, like how to address some of those issues, but one thing that comes to mind right away is the fact that you're not alone. There are other stakeholders in this this area, and our councils able to utilize them very effectively and well the flat answer to that is no they're not they're not resourced correctly i mean the housing first initiative is is great that's that's come in but that's still only in a limited number of centers and it is significantly better funded than some of the other social programs because it takes into account that there needs to be very intensive case management if we're going to target people at the most severe end of the continuum. And linking it back to what you just raised about the housing crisis in New Zealand, there's not, there isn't a single New Zealander, I don't think, who, who wouldn't agree that we have a housing crisis now and a, and a housing affordability crisis. And of course, when there's a housing affordability crisis, is that the, the more affluent you are, so the higher up the chain you are, the more you are able to cope with that, even if it's tough for middle class and higher paid households but always in that kind of situation people who are more vulnerable people who are poorer will sink to the bottom and actually are the ones they are the ones struggling the hardest to access housing at the moment and they are the ones that get left behind when the housing supply doesn't match demand so that's that brings up a particularly interesting point as well as the fact that we, we had you speak along with Andrew Crisp and Andrew McKenzie at our national conference. Um, and it was really interesting to hear Andrew McKenzie speak about social housing. And there are a lot of perceptions about what social housing is and, and is not. But what he was highlighting was the fact that, listen, you may be poor, but it doesn't mean that you're going to get social housing in New Zealand anymore. That it takes multiple issues because we have such limited supply and some people are being pushed into homelessness because that is the, the sole issue. They, they don't have drug addiction issues. They have a, a whole litany of other concerns or, or wraparound services that are required. They simply don't make a whole lot of money and therefore they're pushed into this area. A big question for me, and obviously addressing this in working with councils, is understanding that, A, there, there are lots of groups that may want to be involved with this, and we need to leverage their, their capabilities. As you've just highlighted, we need to do a better job of that. But also identifying and using data to start capturing where they are, where they're going, and where those needs are really needed. Can you talk a little bit more about how important that is for mm -hmm. you? There's a good example, I think, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Housing New Zealand, because the the vision that Housing New Zealand hold is it's inspirational. They they describe their housing as being there for people of last resort, and I think there's a lot of us that that are pleased to hear that that actually it is a really significant safety net that we have in our country that not all countries have. So when we 
even look at housing first programs in the states, they don't have the same level of social housing that we have access to here. So that's a really, that's a very significant sort of baseline that we shouldn't lose sight of how important and significant that is. Our situation would be so much worse if we had let that phenomenal resource slip away. And I think Wellington's fortunate as well in that our council made a very strong commitment to hold on to its housing portfolio. Although a lot of councils around the country, I understand, have some housing. And I think having really good criteria and policy around how they utilise their housing is is a significant part of each individual council's strategy. But to come back to the data question, I think, again, I'd, I'd, I'd point to a good example from Housing New Zealand, because Housing New Zealand in Wellington took notice of the data that was coming through the social housing register that actually demonstrated the greatest demand was for single individual households. And second to that, it was a one parent and one child household. And so that drove the kind of housing that they rebuilt. And at a point when it almost looked as if it would make better economic sense to sell up all the housing New Zealand properties in the city because prices were going through the roof in the city and move out, say, into the heart, Wainuiamata, build three-bedroom houses, actually that would have been completely the wrong thing to do. So they held on to their stock in the city and they've redeveloped them into one- and two-bedroom houses. So... Other cities have gone in really different directions. So that's a way of using the data in a really smart way, reading the future and actually making sure that what's being what's being built or what's being upgraded better meets the needs of who we know are vulnerable in, in the housing market. And one great set of data as well emerged from a census count I think it was 2013. So the Otago School of Medicine looked at that data set from that census and they were able to tell us that there were 41,000 New Zealanders, I think it was New Zealanders, not households, 41,000 people who met the definition of severely housing deprived or homeless. Well, that, that was one in 100 New Zealanders. It was a lot of people. And so that's a really great set of data. So yes, we, we know, I can tell you that since the 1st of January this year, our team at DCM have worked to support 875 people. And I know, I can tell you, that 444 of them meet the New Zealand definition of homelessness. And I can tell you that the largest group of them were in backpackers and boarding houses, and the second group were couch surfing or sharing, and the third group were living in cars or sleeping rough. So I think that every agency should know and understand who's coming through their doors, because you can't respond in a way that truly meets people's needs without understanding who it is that's coming to your service and how you can match your programs, what you provide to meet those needs. It's really important that you bring that up because I think that way you, you, it hinges back to the very beginning of knowing your customer and understanding that, but also on the investment of infrastructure, both social and capital infrastructure, to build the right houses in the right places to meet the needs of those that would occupy it. And so that's really important because not only you're going to be putting something forward, but for sustainment and long-term investment that is required for this. And it, it brings me to the point about sustainability. Um, you know, there's going to be good and bad economic times ahead. You'll see fluctuations and homelessness as those times go on. But what I sense from what you're saying is, particularly on the subject of homelessness, is that every council needs to be vigilant in its investment of acquiring the right data, having talented 
schools or pools of people to draw from and ensuring that that subject never atrophies, that they understand that it'll cost you a whole mo lot more in the long run to basically be the ambulance at the bottom of the hill rather than building the fence over and over again to ensure that you make the, the best, most appropriate investment. Absolutely. We, we will be able to tell in four or five years' time if we've been successful in ending homelessness when most of the funding goes into supporting people to sustain their tenancies because that should be, logically, the key area of focus Right now, the key area of focus has to be on ending homelessness, working with people who are currently homeless to get them housed. So long as we can address housing supply, we should, we should be able to follow Finland's example. So it took them 10 years to go from having quite a sizable homelessness issue to then having a functional zero because they invested in building affordable housing. So we have to bite the bullet on that one. But actually that's a really critical area that both central government and local government do need to be realistic about funding. Every council should be funding a quality agency to work with the people who live in their city to prevent those people becoming homeless because that is the most cost effective and the most compassionate and humane and right thing to do. We at DCM have a contract to do exactly that and we worked with we work with a, with tenants who are struggling to retain their, their tenancies and actually what we notice with every single one without fail is that they have complex mental health and alcohol and drug dependency issues and are carrying trauma and have got a whole lot of issues that they're dealing with in their lives and somehow that's that's not yet connecting well with health services so that there's another sort of disjunct and when we talk about a systems change that's a part of things that needs to be joined up. It's getting joined up on a one, one level because our team are interacting with their mental health or health providers. But actually that should be, systemically we should be recognising that and, and addressing that. We shouldn't look always to central government to be providing that thing. It's the issue that's affecting their own people, their own ratepayers in their own, well they won't be their ratepayers because they're probably not housing, owning homes, but they are their own citizens in their their own city. And again, I can I can point to good examples in Wellington. Our, our council currently funds um, both ourselves and the Wellington City Mission jointly for a street outreach program because what they identified is that in that chain of services, they could see that there were agencies like DCM that had very good triaging on site of people who come through our doors, that the Housing First program was coming on board, that there's a sustaining tenancies component that was preventing homelessness reoccurring. What they did is they joined some money to that, to the sustaining tenancies part, because they said, we're going to fund you to help our tenants to sustain their tenancies as well, because we, we don't want to be evicting people, we want them to be successful tenants, but we're also going to fund at the other end of the chain. So they took a systems approach of thinking, where's the continuum of web of need and we're going to fund either end of it because we think that's where the gaps are and so they fund a street outreach service with that has a it's an assertive service who's who's make a direct approach to people who are rough sleeping not to enable them to continue to sleep rough but to create a plan with every single one of them to exit homelessness into stable housing or if they are currently housed and they're for example street begging to get below 
to get under an understanding of what's really driving that street begging. Is it because the person's poor? Is it because they've got a high level of debt? What, what's going wrong in, the, in their lives? And reconnecting them or connecting them to services that can provide the support. So I think I would encourage every council to have an intelligent overview of what's going on and a critical eye about whether their investment in social agencies is going to work towards ending homelessness or actually embed homelessness. Yeah, it's really important that you bring that up because it takes a strategy, but it also takes the implementation as well because you can come up with a, a fantastic plan and have a vision, but it needs to have that follow through to be really sustainable. And I know in some communities that they've struggled with this particular issue. And um, in, in some places, they haven't actually funded or put the emphasis on it that it's deserved and you have a consequence of not having the right people as you pointed out you have to have the right people in place that are skilled and crafted at this sort of activity to actually get the outcomes that you're really looking for and i, I hesitate to go down a pejorative path but there are consequences of not actually having the right people in place to deliver what outcomes are really most needed can you talk a little bit about not funding and not getting the right people in the right place and what might happen as a result of some of that? I imagine all councils and all aspects of central government have had experiences of in good faith funding initiatives or programs and then discovering down the track that they've perhaps not delivered what they hoped and anticipated they they would. And I think what this comes back to is there needs to be genuine accountability so that organisations do deliver on the programme or, or the approach that they are saying they are going to implement. Because for for us in our outreach contract, we were able to detail what an assertive engagement would look like and put some flesh on that for the council so they got insight into the way that we intended to work. And, and it's a very effective and successful approach. Where, where councils struggle sometimes, I think, is that they, they haven't really learnt and understand this new critical social issue. And if their tendency is to want to fund public meals that are given out to people or, or Band-Aid approaches, then they are going to really struggle to measure good practice. But, of course, as a leader in the social sector, I take very high level of ownership of delivering on what we say we're going to do. I think there are some very ethical, hard-working, efficient, effective services out there, and they should be able to evidence what they say they're going to do. So data on evidence, data on evidence, evidence-informed, data-informed all the time. Yes, yes, yes. We've got to be able to show what those changes are that we've been able to support people to make. One of the other things I add is about the skillfulness. Um, it's not simply a skill. Of course, it is a skill set that social agencies need, but it's also an attitude of openness. We love working with who we work with. People come up to us and pat us on the back and say, you must be saints working with... Actually, no. <laughs> That's, it's a wonderful group of people who we work with. We value and appreciate them. They had a really hard start <laughs> compared to myself and many others, and... We can see some of the consequence of that coming right through into adulthood. So I think that the the values that that organisation's able to articulate, the way that they, if they, you'd be looking to see that they talk respectfully about people, and know and understand the complexity of the cohort that they are seeking to support. Yeah, yeah, I think that's all really critical because what I think you're highlighting is the fact that data 
will inform the future steps and outcomes. Having the right people with the right culture and perspective brought into the fold is absolutely critical. Not saying any one person isn't fantastic at a job, but you need the right mix of characteristics and, and motivations to, to be a part of this. And you're going to have both data driven by quality as well as quantity that results from the efforts. If you were on a council right now, Stephanie, and you were to start off from ground zero, what kinds of questions, maybe one or two questions that would set the council in the right direction? Understanding who's homeless in our community and quite a detailed dig around in that. So understanding the numbers, but the makeup, because this will be very different in South Auckland to a central city. So if our homeless people who are experiencing homelessness are predominantly large families who are doubling up with other families because of low income, because perhaps both parents are on minimum wage working as cleaners and one's working day shift and the other's working night shift, but they simply do not have enough money to afford to make rent. That's a very different form of homelessness from homelessness in a large city where we tend to have a lot of single adults who've got very serious unmet mental health needs, for example. And so knowing and understanding who it is that's homeless so in your own community is I hear critical. Understanding the strata, because obviously different people fall into different categories that premise why they're homeless in the first place. That's probably one of the key things, right? What that profile looks like overall. And there's lots of community agencies around to help with coming up with that picture. I'm personally not a fan of the street count because they can be very expensive. Yes, they give us some good data sna snapshots, and it was, it was. I'm not undermining where that has been done, but I wouldn't recommend replicating that through the country because I think there are other ways to come up with reasonably accurate picture. It, it will, we don't have a situation at the moment where agencies commonly share data sets because of the implications around privacy, but we still can pull together a pretty good and accurate picture by taking various views of it from from around different from perspectives. So knowing and understanding that. And then I think if there's it is incumbent on all councils, because this is such a big issue right now, that they do have someone in their team with that portfolio, with real expertise and understanding of what this issue is comprised of, what it what it really looks like, understanding the, the complexity of it and looking to international and local best practice examples of how to address it. So the I think the weakest situations that occur with councils is when the, the measures or the, what it is that they're seeking to do together are, are unclear. And so then it becomes quite hard to judge whether an agency's been effective or not. So I think some of those, all those things are very important. And being prepared to tailor things to meet the needs of your own community. In, in the way that Wellington has done that, there wasn't a need to fund a housing first approach, but why not do something really complementary to that, that actually forms up that chain, that continuum, so that we know that that will create doorways, entry points into services across a broader spectrum. I think they are probably the most critical things, but also being prepared to think creatively we're in the situation now in New Zealand where we are making real headway, but we're quite locked into this notion that a single adult will go into a single adult household. And actually overseas we're seeing great examples of more supported communal living situations. 
Now, I'm not talking about a shelter when I'm describing that. I'm not talking about a glorified night shelter. I'd like to think that councils weren't funding night shelters at all, and that's with no disrespect to where there are shelters. We have one in Wellington, and they're a critical partner with us in the work that we're doing. So this is not to demean the great work that's going on in shelters. But look again to the Finnish and the Irish examples. The, uh, in Ireland, they built shelters, and they've got a huge number of homeless now. So, But we need to be looking to the future of what are the new cutting-edge ways that we're going to be addressing this. And I want to see more diversity around housing options. People tell us every day that they want to be living either with other people, also that they need more on-site support. And also we know that about people. Some people are so unwell that they would thrive in communal Situation, So perhaps almost like on a little mini rest home kind of model, something more akin to that. We should be starting to get into some diversity by now in New Zealand. Yeah, Stephanie, that's amazing. And I, I can't help but think that I'm just beginning to, you know, touch the tip of the iceberg of the information that you can convey in this podcast. It's really interesting. You have, And I know personally that you have a number of stories that enhance and inform all of these positions that you're speaking about. I just want to thank you again for coming to this podcast. It's been amazing. And I really appreciate, again, your time for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having me.